This episode of the Paddock Pass podcast is brought to you by Renthal and Fly Racing. Hello and welcome to the Paddock Pass podcast presented by Fly Racing and Renthal Street. For premium grips developed by some of the world's fastest riders, check out renthal.com. On the Paddock Pass podcast today, we're going to look back to the first race of the 2022 MotoGP season and the Qatari Grand Prix delivered once again. We had a brand new MotoGP winner in Enea Bastianini. We had a brand new Moto2 winner with Salivietti winning his first Moto2 race. And we also had a first win in four and a half years for Andrea Migno in the Moto3 class. So there's a lot of ground to cover on today's Paddock Pass podcast. And David Emmett, Adam Wheeler, Neil Morrison, really... Qatar after all the wait for this opening race it did deliver for us and uh, David obviously enough for you everyone's always interested to know what upgrades you made over the winter for your roundups each evening have you brought back the red wine on a Sunday evening or is that still going to be a, a little bit off off the menu no it's now it's um, a white wine and only when I'm finished which was uh 4am last night so um not terrific a good early finish for you then, Dave, having written that roundup. Um, Adam, obviously enough, we expected to see you out in Qatar for the race, but uh, you had a bit of bad luck in the build-up to it, and uh, you had a very different experience for the weekend. Dave, did you have your white wine on your cornflakes? I, I did. No, I don't eat cornflakes. I, I, I don't know what the fuss is about uh, breakfast cereals. I think they're massively overrated. Because 4 a.m. is the time that Adam gets up every day, of course. <laughs> exactly. Professional Perhaps, athlete puts, he is. Perhaps Adam puts white wine on his cornflakes. That would may explain why he's so cheery in the mornings. Yeah. Uh, one word, children. Don't go anywhere near him. No, um, uh, yeah, Steve. Yes, to, to get to the point, I'm very disappointed to actually get a negative, uh, sorry, a positive antigen uh, on the Monday before Qatar, uh, which turned into obviously a positive PCR test, uh, which meant I had to rapidly cancel my plans to get out and get some content. Um, and see cheery people like Neil uh, on the ground in the LaSalle International Circuit, now spelt with a U. Uh, so, yeah, that was uh, obviously a bit of a plan wrecker. And very frustrating, of course, uh, because, you know, I missed the first um, MXGP round of the year after being postponed in the UK due to Storm Eunice. So my track record so far in 2022 is pretty poor. Uh, in frustration, I've actually booked um, a trip to the Seattle Supercross uh, at the end of this month. Um, one of the only gaps I kind of really had in the calendar um, just to get out and to get some interviews and, and get some get some content in the book. So, yeah, I mean, it was good. I, I guess I shouldn't really complain. I had um, a very light kind of touch with this virus. It was nothing worse than a very light cold um, and it lasted a couple of days. And frustratingly, tested negative um, Friday morning uh, just as FP1 was starting. So it was uh, uh, re- very, very poor timing. Well, obviously enough though, Adam, there were some bright spots for the week as well for you because you were able to spend an awful lot more time on MotoGP Fantasy for a change. And, oh, uh, we're going there. Here. We're going there straight away, are we? Oh, Yeah, I want to get this out of the way as quickly as possible. <laughs> <laughs> well, obviously, it's just a nice little initiative we set up for followers of the Paddock Pass podcast. Um, you know, if you think you know about the sport as much or as little as we do, then, you know, pick the riders and, and you know, stand by your uh, predictions. So we did, and um, I think there's a certain team right at the top of the chart. Um, and just to prove how um, uh, you know fruitless the whole thing is in terms of ability, my uh, 13-year-old son I think is hovering in fourth place. Um, you know, he asked me who to pick, and uh, he quite liked the look of Takanagagami uh, for some reason. I think he liked the look of the motorcycle this year. 
So I think he slotted him in the team and the rest of the picks worked out for him. So, But anyone who's listening, um, it's still not too late. Get involved. We've only one round into 21, so there's plenty of points on the board. Um, the, the league is called Paddock Pass Pod Knowles, I believe. So just get on there and join us and uh, we'll, we, you know, bragging rights we'll, and we'll try and get some prizes together as well from our friends at Fly Racing and also Renthal, maybe even a couple of other people like Oakley. And at the end of the year, we'll be throwing some stuff around. But thanks for bringing that up, Steve. Um, please carry on with the pod. Yeah, let's uh, move on swiftly because my team was terrible. I actually initially put uh, Bestia on my team and then I decided, ah, no, I'll, I'll drop him and put in the Suzukis and uh, that didn't end up too good for me. But uh, Neil, obviously enough, it ended as a pretty good week for you because you had a five-course breakfast this morning. What what goes into a five-course breakfast? I've not stayed in any of these fancy hotels like you. Well, they say uh, one man's loss is another man's gain, and uh, Adam <laughs> had a pretty nice hotel booking uh, for the Qatar GP and uh, very kindly offered uh, to change the name of his booking to my name if I uh, chucked a couple of quid his way. I think, what was it, five, six quid you asked me to pay you, Adam? A couple of coffees in Barcelona. I like the way that you changed the name back to Adam Wheeler when you were presented with your room service bill. So thanks a lot for that. A room service bill of 85 euros. Okay, I had a dinner one evening, but I think I had two bags of crisps that were there. I mean, I thought that was just like complimentary. And then two bags of cookies. 80, well, okay, so what, 65 euros for that? That is mental. Anyway. I'll be honest, Neil. It, it's It's pretty clear, though, on the basis of the last, what, five six seven eight years most of the places that you've stayed in wouldn't tend to have the fridge filled with things it's usually an empty fridge that you can put your own bottle of water into so i I can understand how this situation arose exactly yeah but to go back to your original question steve a five course breakfast usually you've got cereal fruit toast eggs and then a bit of croissant a bit of viennoiserie uh, to finish things off so yeah um you're always smiling after a start to the day quite like that on a serious note, Neil, how are you coping? Because, you know, Qatar can be pretty gnarly, can't it, in terms of, you know, working schedules, going through the evening and getting copy done after debriefs and whatever else. I mean, we had the good fortune of MotoGP being two hours earlier this year, um, which on a wider note, the riders and teams appreciate for the conditions. Uh, but, you know, still working. It's, it's a late, it's, it's a hard old Grand Prix, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it's a slog. It is, yeah. You get home at uh, 10 and then it's time to go for dinner and then you've still got a whole load of stuff to do after that. Um, so fair play to Mr. Emmett for staying up until 4am. I think I crashed around, uh, just after midnight, but yeah, getting through it slowly, but surely already had, already had Mr. Wheeler chasing me for a, a deadline today. So that, uh, that certainly <laughs> sent the fear of God into me before my flight home tonight. I probably didn't make you do it though, Neil. I was going to say, I have to ask for it today and maybe I'll get it by the time Indonesia comes around. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, only kidding. somewhat um obviously enough uh the qatari grand prix all of us will do our usual uh review grand prix uh topics and uh, the big thing is what was everyone's moment of the weekend and uh david i'm going to kick off with you what was your moment of the the opening round of the year well um i'm going to start off with moto3 because moto3 uh i mean i generally moto3 can be very predictable especially at a place like qatar we've got a really really long straight um we just have a big group and uh you watch the start and then you were go off uh, for what is it 35 minutes or something then you come back watch the last two laps find out who comes uh, or who enters the final corner second because they're going to win 
possibly third. Um, and that's it. But it didn't happen this time. Ayumi Sasaki was having an absolutely fantastic race. Uh, got a really good start. Obviously, we had the messing about with the um, uh, with, with penalties. So Sasaki inherited pole. Um, got a fantastic start. Uh, got away while the rest were all beating each other up. Had the thing in the bag. I think he was leading by nearly four seconds at one point. Um, and then threw it all away by having a massive high side, uh, a high side big enough, I think in turn six. I'm not I'm not completely sure, but I think it was turn six. Um, that was enough to set the fairing loose. Uh, it was sort of like hanging off um, and he just couldn't ride anymore. So he had to retire. So the, the, for me, that was to see that because it was such a fantastic race. And then one sort of stupid error because he's still pushing too hard. Uh, and that's it, game over. That that for me was sort of the how close the difference is between triumph and tragedy. I'm just trying to recover from the shock of Dave picking a Moto3 moment as his <laughs> moment of the Grand Prix. But I think there was actually um, some issue with Sasaki. I, I mean, I, I think Neil might be able to chase me up on this because he, he might know better. But I believe he chose the soft Dunlop. Um, and he seemed to intimate to the team because I heard his quote that he was suffering some tire wear, some severe tire wear. That was one of the causes for the moment as well. And also another reason why he couldn't quite continue. Um, there was a hint that there was some sort of technical problem outside of the fairing hanging off. Uh, so that, that, you know, might have something to do with it. Oh, yeah. But I mean, it's it, it's <clears throat> obviously when something like that happens, that it has to be a technical problem. Do you know what I mean? It wasn't I was stupid and high-sided the thing. It was, no, 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 the tire. There was a, a mysterious tire. It just, I don't know what <laughs> happened. It just seemed to let go. I think it must have been worn, you know. Yeah, I had a mysterious keyboard error, David, with a lot of my typos for you. So <laughs> Yeah, 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 yeah. You really not have got to stop using a, a, a Taiwanese keyboard to type, uh, Steve. Well, the problem with it is, is actually that the comma button doesn't work so uh <laughs> that that's the biggest issue i have a massive technical failure for me but uh neil actually just to to talk a little bit about the moto 3 race obviously we saw andrea Mino win his first race since 2017 obviously Mino's always been fast but really inconsistent in moto 3 and i think his best overall season is eighth or ninth in the, in the championship and obviously he's one of those riders now vastly experienced expected to be able to mount somewhat of a challenge over the course of the season but uh, this was the perfect start to the season for him able to take advantage of like David said some of the penalties that we saw coming into the race and uh, a lot of grid penalties for riders and Mino did a really good job during the course of this race was running up in second behind Sasaki and uh, took advantage of what happened in front of him he did have a good race yeah you can always tell a, a race weekend when Adam Wheeler actually isn't in the paddock because he's basically picking you up on every single thing you say in commentary <laughs> that he doesn't agree with. And uh, I might have mentioned that I thought Minya was in, in store for a good season. I didn't say he was going to be a champion or anything, but I thought, you know, he looks like he's probably going to have maybe the best season of his career. Um, Adam Wheeler took a, a offence to this and, and just would not let it lie. And how, how lovely it was to see Minya actually win in the race uh, come Sunday afternoon. So, uh, yeah, it looks like he's in, in good form. Uh, second year at the Honda. I think he's Maybe a guy that could be in the top five in the championship towards the end of the year. Hang on. Two two things, Steve. Two things. <clears throat> I think Neil's words were on the broadcast, something like uh, he will be a title contender or something. I'm actually going to go back and go through the Dawn archive and find the words and we'll put it as a little soundbite and throw it into the show next uh, next week. <laughs> the second well, thing, he's, you know. He's the championship well, I, leader, mate. 
I almost spat out my coffee at the time. <laughs> I thought, you know, I'm real. And the second thing is, Andrea Mignu, someone has to explain to him that just because they do contracts early in the MotoGP class, that doesn't necessarily work in the Moto3 class. So the usual time around June, July, when he feels he has to put in a good couple of results and secure his job for next year, he's peaked too early. So I do wonder, you know, if if, if Andrea Mignu has um, shot his bolt. Uh, but yeah, I'm being uh, overly facetious. I think it was it was a good race. Yeah, I was going to say even more cynical than normal there, Ad. So maybe that was <laughs> one of the side effects of COVID nineteen for you. Um, He's had COVID nineteen for did... years then. <laughs> <laughs> Neil, just another thing about Moto3. We did see, um, obviously, the Sasaki crash. We also saw Masia have a crash as well. And uh, again, from those leading positions, he has a crash. We saw the usual aggressive riding all the way through the field. But what was your take on um, what we saw at the end of the qualifying session? I mean, it was pretty dumb, wasn't it? Um, I think it was probably deserving of a stronger penalty, really. Uh, what Foggia did uh, veering to the side when uh, going towards the start line was not uh, was not clever. I mean, after... Uh, the very, very near miss that we had in Barcelona last year, then obviously the huge incident in Austin. I thought it was something that deserved an even harsher penalty than what he received. Yeah, and uh, obviously enough as well, Neil, we'll move on to you for your moment of the weekend. And uh, what was it for you? I mean, it was probably when Pekka Banyai took out Jorge Martin at turn one because it just compounded a dreadful day for the factory Ducatis and the Pramac Ducatis. And it was such a strange occasion in that it was bittersweet and Bastianini obviously won his first Grand Prix did so brilliantly um, is rapidly emerging as the new star of the sport but um, but yeah Banyai's mistake was so unlike him he had two crashes in the weekend and we just don't really uh, see that uh, from him and uh, yeah he never really once looked like the figure that we saw at the end of last year in Qatar um, so yeah it seems to be one of those occasions where from a great position of strength Ducati have suddenly <laughs> shot themselves in the foot obviously I, I don't foresee this uh, going on um, for a, a great deal of time but um, yeah that just it kind of compounded their weekend their fortunes with everything that had gone on um, yeah, yeah I thought it was quite it was typical of their weekend for Banya and Martin's uh, races to end in such a way yeah I thought it was really interesting afterwards when Jorge Martin was asked how he assessed the weekend and he basically said you know what it's hard to find what the strength of this bike is now compared to previous years where they knew exactly where they had that advantage over everyone else he was talking in terms of being overtaken on the straight struggling to make moves and uh, Ducati in his eyes after Qatar seemed to need to go a little bit back to the drawing board Dave that this was a track where they expected to be really strong expected to be able to win races and instead I know obviously Bastianini has a great weekend but that's with the older bike but with the new bike all four guys really struggled uh, well yeah it's the difference between having a bike where you've got uh, an absolute sort of truckload of data with and uh, a bike which is still new and Pekka was complaining that uh, basically they'd been testing parts uh, right up until uh, the, the end of FP3. Uh, so they had no time to actually work on a setup, to, to work on the electronics, just to sort the bike out um, to ride. He said, look, I just want to get on the thing and ride. And it, he almost sort of threatened them, it, like, you will not touch this bike for the rest of the year. Um, I think this is going to be a, a bit of a problem going forward. They're going to have to, there's going to be a few places where they struggle because they've been spending all this time sort of, you know, to, uh, testing new parts and all the rest of it. Uh, and until we get to the Jerez and the Barcelona tests, um, 
and sort of just get some track time to actually go around in circles and sort the thing out. Um, uh, they're they're going to continue to have this sort of an issue until they've finally figured it out. And the, the odd thing is, I mean, it seems to me the only thing that they've really changed is put this new front ride height device in, but perhaps that is taking so long to get right that, um, yeah, that, that it's a bit of a distraction. Yeah, Pekko Bonai said more than once in his debrief that um, <clears throat> Enea just had to fill the bike with gas, um, yeah. you know, and put tires on and race it. I mean, there was almost like a feeling that, you know, he um, he longed for that, that bike of his last year that, you know, seemed quite easy to, to take good results towards the end of the season. And Martin, for his role in the crash, um, like Neil mentioned, um, you know, apparently yanked his thumb. So in true Martinator fashion, you know, he, when he comes off the bike, he sustains some kind of physical damage. Whether it's going to affect him too much for Indonesia, we'll have to wait and see. But I think this year as well, uh, it will be a test of how Martin is as a development rider. You know, can he really set up a motorcycle to his liking? Can he take uh, a bike that isn't quite the finished product and, and make it work for him? That's that's one big question hovering over his head. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point, Adam. And obviously, we're going to talk a lot more about Ducati later on in the show as well. But uh, Adam, what about you? What was your moment of the weekend? Um, just coming back to Moto3, I mean, I have some sympathy for the Husqvarna guys, Steve, because the last time we saw a race being dominated any fashion like Sasaki was doing was Romana Fanati and Mizano last year. And of course, he chucked it away. So the team must be, you know, they're going to be on tenterhooks, I think, if McPhee or Sasaki again get in a position where they've got the Grand Prix won by mid-race distance, you know, will they actually be able to bring it home? Um, you know, on a partisan note, it was great to see the Vision Track Racing team making their debut in Moto3. It was a shame they just couldn't get into the points, you know, with Watley and Ogden. Um, but I spoke to Michael Laverty. I mean, he's got some very ambitious uh, plans, you know, also heading into the categories for the future, both Moto2 and even MotoGP. Um, you know, with this new British setup, um, so that was that was good to you know hear his his uh, outline for for the future, just prior to the Grand Prix. But for me, um, for me, it was very easy. The KTM Red Bull KTM in MotoGP, Steve. Uh, you know, Brad Binder, he was running top three for the whole Grand Prix, and there was, I think, a part of a lot of people who had seen MotoGP in Qatar over the last half a decade and thought, right, okay, when's the KTM really going to start to struggle? When is it going to drop its pace? Uh, but Binder was fantastic. I mean, KTM have never finished higher than six in Qatar. Um, in 2017, they made their debut there. Paul Spargaro finished 16th, I believe, uh, more than 30 seconds away from the race winner. And they've dropped that all the way down to three tenths of a second. Uh, so it was a fantastic you know, Grand Prix for the Austrians. Um, they've really improved that package, obviously. And, you know, for me, Mark Marcus's words, you know, in his media debrief, um, you know, he was just describing watching Binder and he said that he, he never really rode the same lap the same way. Um, you know, he was uh, going deeper into the corners some laps. He was breaking earlier and getting, you know, uh, quicker out, well, working more on corner exit for other laps. So, you know, if, if the KTM has greater versatility, then that's um, a really promising sign. Yeah, I just sort of collected some numbers the, the other night and uh, Brad Binder was 15 seconds, 15 and a half seconds faster this year than it was last year, which is really quite a uh, quite a big step. The whole race itself was uh, 10.8 seconds faster than Qatar 2. Um, and that was the second one. That was after, you know, Qatar 2 was um, the second race a week after uh, the first race, which was itself sort of, what, a week, two weeks after um, uh, after testing there. So, yeah, I mean, this was this race was really, really fast. And for Binder to get on the podium and he looked like he could have he could have got close to winning i mean we talked about this on the paddock notes show last night ad 
um, that if the race had gone on a little bit longer or if Binder had just sort of paced his race a little bit better, a little bit differently, maybe he, he could have taken another victory, but he looked, he looked really, really sharp. Yeah, I do think, obviously enough, um, that's one of the key talking points, David. And uh, like you said, we did talk about that a lot during the Paddock Notes show. So check out patreon.com forward slash Paddock Pass podcast. Over the course of a Grand Prix weekend, we all get together on a Zoom call to be able to get everyone up to speed on what we've heard from the debriefs and uh, what we've heard from the Paddock. So check that out as well. And uh, Adam, obviously the improvements that uh, KTM made, it was interesting to hear Binder talk about that because he was talking about Obviously, the top speed's never been an issue. Power's never really been an issue for KTM. But now they can brake the bike, and once he releases the brake, really let it run into the corner, whereas in the past, they had to really wait to be able to do that. Yeah, it was just about edge grip and corner exit. I mean, that was where the KTM was really struggling last year. Um, you know, I don't think uh, the problem is solved for everybody. I mean, Miguel Oliveira had pretty good race pace, but obviously his qualifying position held him back. Um, you know, and, and he lost the front going into turn one and the braking. So the Portuguese still has a little bit of work to do. But, you know, Binder's um, kind of old fashioned tendency just to throw the, you know, the bike around and make the best of any situation on Sunday is, is, a, is a big asset for that motorcycle, Steve. So, uh, yeah, you know, it needs to be shown in other circuits, of course. I mean, it's still a relatively new bike. Uh, but, you know, in Indonesia is going to be a complete gamble on a lottery. But, you know, I think it was, uh, you know, it was the KTM's best start to a season so far. And tellingly, the last time Binder finished on the podium um, and the opening Grand Prix was 2016 when he was Moto3 world champion. So uh, a long shot omen there. I mean, you probably get some good odds on that, Steve. You'll have to look up, uh, you know, how, how will ben, what's the odds on Binder being world champion this year? I'd say it's probably about as long as the odds on your accumulator from last week coming off. But uh, I think for me, probably my moment of the weekend was actually during free practice three. And it wasn't anything in particular. It was just Jack Miller came in five minutes left in the session and he looked furious. He looked super tense. You could see just the the sense of a rider that knew the importance of having to go in and set a fast time. And it's nothing about Jack or Ducati. Obviously, Ducati's pace in the single lap and qualifying showed what they could do. Three bikes in the top four. But it was that moment where you're able to see just the pressure that these guys are under to get into the top 10, to get into Q2, because we saw that if you struggled to get yourself into that position, it really was going to have a knock-on effect all the way through the weekend. And obviously enough, we saw that Fabio Quattararo didn't get into Q2, had to come through Q1. And I think that's where, you know, FP3, I know, David, your favourite session of the weekend is FP4. I think FP3 could be mine over the course of this season. Yeah, well, I mean, it was extra complicated this year because um, because of the timing of the race and the practice sessions. So it looked like FP2 was going to be the only real session that they would have um, because the you know the, the track temperature is 10, 12, 13 degrees difference uh, between FP1, between the, if you like, the morning sessions, even though it's sort of like early afternoon uh, and the evening sessions. And that makes a huge difference in the amount of grip and how fast you can go and all the rest of it. And so like FB2 was, they had to prepare for the race and try and get through to, to and try to set up a, a fast time. And then in FB3, the track was actually sort of like clean enough and, um, and rubbered in enough that it was giving a little bit of grip. And if if you really pushed, you could improve the times. And there was a few a few riders who did improve the time and, and, and changed um, that change who went through to uh, through to, to Q2 directly. So yeah, the the pressure is just absolutely enormous, and um, it's I mean it's great for fans because the field is so compressed. I think 
Uh, what was it after uh, after FP? Was it after FP three where there was something like eighteen riders within a second or something? It, uh, it the whole thing is just so compressed. Everything is so compressed that it's so small, and the margins between being into Q two. I mean, you know, having uh, looking comfortably into Q two in terms of position, four, fifth, sixth, and then being just out can be less than a tenth of a second. So it's 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 literally just one tiny mistake in one corner, and you're out of Q two. You're through to Q one, and your weekend is a lot more is a lot more complicated. Yeah, and uh, that's that's what really makes and breaks the weekend. And we're obviously going to talk about that after the ad break when we come back and we look at some of the big talking points from the Qatar Grand Prix. Renthal Street Ultralight Rear Sprockets are CNC machined from an advanced aluminum keeping rotating unsprung mass to a minimum. The integral hard anodized finish has a higher resistance to mechanical wear, which increases its longevity. Available for a huge range of motorcycles with options for a number of teeth and chain pitch. Use the Fit My Bike tool on Renthal.com to find the correct fitment for your bike. Welcome back to the Paddock Pass podcast presented by Fly Racing and Renthal Street. And uh, obviously enough, we didn't pick Enea Bastianini as uh, one of our moments of the weekend. Him winning his first ever MotoGP race. Grassini's first Premier Class win in 15 and a half years. But Neil... You've obviously seen an awful lot of Bastianini over the course of the last few years in the Moto2 class, especially when he was able to pick up a world championship. But what he did this weekend really was impressive. We saw a cool head all the way through, qualified well, didn't panic at the start of the race, and then managed his tyre, managed his pace really well all the way through. Yeah, it was brilliant from Bastianini. Um, he obviously was so impressive towards the end of last year, but there were still a couple of question marks, mainly the fact that he couldn't really qualify. He had all these uh, fantastic comebacks and races in the final third of last year, but they were usually from 12th, 14th, 16th on the grid. I think his two podiums in Mizano came from 12th and 16th on the grid, respectively. Um, and there was always the kind of maybe the impression that... Uh, I only done it because Mizano is like his strongest track. It's his home track and a, a place that he knows well. But he was doing that in a, a two-year-old bike. So I think it's only, um, you know, it's logical. He steps up to um, the best Ducati on the grid at this present time. You know, the GP1 last year was a, a fantastic package. Um, probably one of the best packages in, in recent MotoGP history. And uh, as Peko Bagnaia uh, spoke or complained of after the race, you know, Bastianini's just had to put fuel in the thing and uh, and basically work on himself right the way through winter months. Um, it does seem that he spent a, a particular amount of time uh, focusing on doing fast one-off lap times, and we saw the results of that as early as the Sepang test. But I really thought this guy is, something's changed here because he was, he was strong in qualifying. Um, he was, I think, what, second on the grid? Um, and... You know, he, he just gave himself a chance, and uh, I thought he was quite measured in how he managed the race. He's, he's always so good towards the end. Even looking back at his Model Three career, he was always one of the strongest guys at the end of a race. He's just got a kind of a riding style which takes care of the tires. And um, you know, even when Paul Espargaro was setting a, a ferocious pace up front, um, that surprised everyone. I think uh, when you speak to the top guys, Bastianini was able to hang in there. And uh, and you know timed his attack to perfection. So um, it was a it was a great ride. I think it's the ninth new MotoGP winner since the start of the 2020 season. Um, so just over two seasons. Um, and I mean that is a, a very visual changing of the guard, isn't it? You know, nine new winners in, in such a short space of time. And Bastianini looks like uh, a guy that can be at the top of MotoGP for 
the next while, I think. Uh, the way that he managed the race was just outstanding. That was really the most impressive thing to me. Um, also, because Brad Binder was coming fast, but it didn't matter because by then Bastianini had it in the bag. It was it was a very, very impressive uh, ride. You know, just his second season and he's already capable of um, winning at one of the tracks where the tyre wear is the most important. It's one of the biggest factors. Managing that, I think, is is quite exceptional and you know we're going to see a lot a lot more of him and at, um at some point Ducati are going to have to decide um I mean it's clear he deserves a GP22 although uh, we'll talk about this in a moment um there, there would be not so much of a of an, of an advantage served for him uh, but at some point in the future um they're going to have to put him on the late, on the latest spec because it's clear that he can be a he can be a factor in the championship yeah, of course, you know, the narrative around Grassini as well, um, you know, and his widow looking on, um, you know, taking over the reins of the race team. It was it was a great, like we said on the Paddock Pass podcast note show, it was a great kind of um, story to open the season with. You know, even if it wasn't like a classic, classic race with a lot of overtaking, um, it, it was extremely heartwarming, uh, a very well-received result, I think, Um Perfect to launch the second season of the Amazon uh, docu series that's about to drop the first one. Um, I also, I think for Bastianini, it was probably a little bit of a wake up call. Um, you know, from the quotes and stuff we heard from him in preseason, he's making noises about wanting to break into the factory team, wanting to be an official Ducati rider. But, you know, if he can use this spike and realize that he has the tools to get the job done and elevate his profile even more, then, you know, what is the reason to change? Um, you know, it's, uh, of, of course, there are mitigating factors of wanting to be a factory rider, but if you have the bike to win, then, uh, you know, you have to be satisfied, I guess. Yeah, it was interesting listening to some guys after the race speak about this. You know, Joanne Mir said that he was absolutely sure Bastianini would be fighting for more race wins as the season goes on. Mark Marquez uh, said he expects Bastianini to fight for the championship, which is maybe a bit um on the optimistic side i'm not sure uh, just the fact that he's on a, a year old machine as the season develops you have to imagine that um you know the, the 2022 ducatis will catch up and, and and overtake him um in terms of the the, the potential of their package um but i, I bumped into carlo pernat and as a personal manager after the race had finished and he was saying that he feels the, bo- the best thing for for Bastia would not to go to the factory team in 2023 just because um you know there's so much pressure there instead of 10 engineers working in your side of the garage you've got 50 um being italian there is just immense pressure um pernat was basically saying this current situation where he's basically without pressure but within a very familiar environment with uh, lots of italian speaking people around it's just perfect for him um so uh, so yeah maybe maybe as you said, Ed, the the kind of step up to the factory team wouldn't be the the, the be all and end all uh, for someone like Pastinini. Yeah, I think as well. It's easy to forget that uh, you know up until forty eight hours ago on the opening day of the season, we all thought that you know Jorge Martin's going to be the rider that Ducati will plump onto that factory seat. So it's easy to have the recency bias of what we saw from Bastianini at the weekend and then wait and see how that transpires after a little bit more of the 2022 season. But he definitely showed everyone what he could do and it's always easy to forget who wins world championships in the Moto2 and Moto3 classes. Bestia won the Moto2 world championship and he's always been noted as being a, a really good rider and uh, it was impressive what he was able to do at the weekend to be able to keep that cool head. You know, like David said as well, just the fact that Paul went off 
like a scolded cat at the start of the race and Bastianini was still able to say, okay, I'm going to stick to my plan. Yeah, Steve, just just to react to that, um, I think, you know, I have some sympathy for Jack Miller because I think one of the first questions he had in his media debriefs at the Grand Prix on a Friday was like, "Do you, are you worried about your seat? And he can, he can almost see him roll his eyes as if to say, like, I'm facing these questions again. Uh, you know, it's uh, he. I think his answer was actually pretty direct. It's like, you know, I really couldn't fucking care. He said, "I get this is the kind of stuff I get all the time: scrutiny over my job, scrutiny over my contract." Um, you know, he's being quite stoic about it all, and what will happen, what will happen. Um, and then on the, on the other point about Mark, uh, like Neil said, Mark referencing Bastianini for the championship. For me, that seems like a little bit of mind games. Um, you know, if Bastianini starts reading stuff about you know his own potential for a world championship from a rider like Mark, then that also cranks up the pressure. That means, you know, he can't afford to be dropping points over the next couple of races when Mark is actually going to be raising his level even more. So that's, that's pretty clever. Yeah, we've seen time and time again just how Mark is willing to play the mind games. And we actually saw it during the course of the qualifying session as well, whenever he sat behind Paco Bagnaia. And even when Bagnaia is saying, you know, just, just get off my tail, just leave me alone. Mark is still just sitting behind them saying like, no, I'm just going to sit here because you have to set a fast lap and I can set a faster lap behind you. So he's never afraid of being able to do exactly what he needs to do. But uh, Neil, what about you? What was your big talking point of the opening round of the year? What was the the one thing that you want to get off your chest after seeing the Qatar Grand Prix? Well, I've already kind of alluded to it um, in the uh, moment of the weekend section, um, and it's just the contrasting fortunes within Ducati. I mean, it's, uh, it's quite a range of emotions that... Uh, Gigi Delinia, Paolo Ciabatti, Davide Taulotti must have been feeling towards the end. Obviously, it's uh, it's a great success that um, their bike from last year um, goes and wins the race in a in a new satellite team that um, is using Ducati machinery. You know, it's testament to the package they put together last year. It's testament to one of the the great talents that they've got in their hands. But then, you know, you also have to look at um, the fortunes of the likes of Anya Miller. Obviously, had to retire with an electronics issue, uh, and 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 uh, Jorge Martin. You know, three guys that you would expect to be challenging somewhere towards the front in Qatar. Um, and it's just uh, you just have to wonder what the strategy was all about uh, throughout preseason because. Um, you know, Banyaya, for one, um, was particularly cheesed off last night, um, understandably so, um, said, I think, basically, FP4 was the first time that uh, he was able to start working just on his bike for the race, rather than just testing new things and being a test rider to a certain extent. Um, you know, they are still playing catch up. And um, I mean, it's a, it's a bit of a disastrous start. You can't really afford to be giving up um, big points. I know Mark Marquez only finished uh, fifth, uh, John Muir sixth, but you can't be affording to, to have like careless DNFs like this and kind of lost weekends right at the start of the season because, um, you know, if they go on and have another dodgy one at Mandalika, then um, suddenly they're facing a, an uphill task to try and get back in the title fight. And, you know, considering where they were at the end of last year, that's just a, a disastrous state of affairs, really. Yeah, we saw Jack Miller have an electronics issue where basically the bike lost itself out in the track, so wasn't able to continue. And obviously that crash with Bagnaia and Martin, and uh, you know, Martin said he didn't expect to be anywhere at the end of the race anyway. And I thought, like you said, Neil Peco saying that you know he's he's not a test rider; he's there to win races. He needs to be able to focus on what he has to do. I thought that was probably the most telling thing that we saw all the way through the weekend from Ducati David, just that sense of frustration for Bagnaia. 
Uh, yeah, exactly. Because he is there to win a championship. You know, after last year, um, after such an incredibly strong year last year, he was expecting to come in and, and uh, challenge for the championship. And he comes in uh, and he doesn't have a fitting with a bike. Um, that He's still playing around with parts. They haven't sorted out lots of things. I think the, the fact that also that they... Um, brought this 2022 engine, uh, which they don't like because the first touch of throttle is quite aggressive. And then the factory riders uh, or the, the factory decided for the factory riders that they're not going to use the, uh, the this 2022 engine. They're going to use a version of the 21 engine. Um, that's a big deal. That means that they, they really had too much work to do. It's a little bit reminiscent of uh, the issues which KTM had where they would just keep on throwing parts at things uh, in the hope that something would stick and which they've now changed to focus on, okay, this is the package we've got. Let's see what we can get out of it first. And then once we know what we can get out of it, for uh, get out of it, we can uh, do it again. So it, it does feel like um, they are, and perhaps it's also because everyone has had two years to develop their engines um, because of the, this freeze and also uh, the aerodynamics package. That has also been a big... Um, uh, they're allowed to make more changes this year than they were last year. Um, so there's just more... Uh, engineers have got more possibilities and it looks like... Because we know that uh, you know Ducati's credo is to... Um, you know, innovate, really innovate. And they have been absolutely fantastic at innovating. Um, but sometimes you can play around too much and it really feels like they've played around a lot and they're running into the problems of having played around a lot and now they need to uh, to take a step back sort out what they've got and just just race i thought um you know also when you look at the weekend as a whole one of the big storylines was obviously the fact that the factory guys have come with a different engine spec to the other gp21s on the grid sorry gp22s on the grid I mean, that's a far from ideal situation because suddenly the the kind of direct comparison with real intricate little things with the likes of Martin and Zarco is is maybe not as relevant as, as it would have been, you know, or as it has been in recent years. No, I mean, like power maps, things as simple as torque maps, um, you can't use them anymore because the power delivery is different. And so you can't uh, take a look and see what the, you know, at, at throttle position settings, that sort of thing, um, from the Pramac bikes to the factory bikes, because... It's different that you know the, the engine is reacting differently, and so obviously the throttle is going to be different, and um, the, the the way that the bike behaves uh, is different. So all of the, the the setup is going to be you know similar. It'll be okay-ish, but it's not going to be the same. It's not going to be the the, the same situation as it was last year, where all four bikes had the uh, had the same engine, and they could just you know make direct uh, make direct comparisons and the Pramac boys are finding out the disadvantage of being in a in a satellite team or a Ducati junior team um because they are now the development team you know they they're basically they've been told here's the engine uh, we're going to sort it out uh, you get to develop it tell us when it's uh, tell us when it's really really good um and that's the data we can use to work on next year i do wonder how quickly Ducati will be able to get sorted out I mean, the, have they spread themselves too thin? I mean, with eight motorcycles on the grid this year and a big looming Moto E project, uh, you know, in full development as well, uh, is Ducati course, you know, both on the technical side and the sporting side going to have their hands full? Maybe they've lost a bit of focus when they should have been like completely honing on, a, on an athlete like Peko Bangnaya to, to bring them the championship this year. 
Yeah, I, I don't think they've spread themselves too thin. They, I think they're just too ambitious. I think they're just getting, a, you, you know, it's like a child in a toy shop. There's just too many short, uh, toys to actually concentrate, you know. It's like um, uh, instead of, as you say, just concentrating on a few things, uh, they've tried to do too much. We've covered a lot of ground with Ducati over the course of the pod so far, but uh, what was your big talking point from the weekend? Well, the other uh, the other big loser, really, from the um, from the weekend is Yamaha. But um, once again, it was clear because the Fabio Quartararo uh, really messed it up in qualifying. He lost that in qualifying. It, pr- it was proved once again. Uh, he said that um, he was having the basically basically the front tire overheated, which is sort of uh, more or less the same thing that happened to him in uh, Aragon in twenty twenty. Um, you get behind people following, and so the front the, the the front tire starts to heat up, and um, because it heats up, the pressure goes up, and because the pressure goes up, you're getting less feel through through the front. So you know you haven't got as much confidence through uh, with your corner speed and all the rest of it. Um, and the MR is still a fantastic bike as long as you start from the front, from the two front rows, but they can't do that. And obviously they've gone for this high downforce. Um, uh, aero configuration, which uh, is going to be really good once they get to tracks like uh, Jerez, um, Le Mans to a certain extent, uh, certainly, you know, like Saxony. Well, no Saxony because there's not so many sort of tight corners, but a lot of places where there are sort of tighter corners, this package is really going to help with drive out of corners. They really didn't look like they had a lot of drive um which was which was quite surpri- uh, surprising but then they you know there were the, all of this sort of long corners but they they probably brought a bit more horsepower but then they used that extra horsepower um to keep the front end down by putting bigger wings on and so they just seem to have got the the the, the compromise wrong especially at a track like this yeah, and uh, next time out in Mandelica is actually going to be a pretty good track for that uh, configuration as well. So a good chance for Yamaha to bounce straight back. But uh, obviously, David, when you look down the list of uh, qualifying and the race results and all the practice sessions, when you look at Franco Morbidelli, Andrea Davizioso, Darren Binder, it didn't make pretty reading on any scale for Yamaha over the course of this weekend. No, exactly. And I mean, you know, Morbidelli, because Morbidelli seems to be going okay at one point, but then uh, he finishes, what, uh, 20, no, 16 or uh, 16 points, uh, 16 seconds off the pace, down in 11th. That's that, that's a long way back. Um, and he was sort of saying, look, I can save up. Um, I, I'm not too concerned because I can sort of, you know, try to push myself um, uh, or wait until the end of the race and try and make a push. But the opposite happened. That that just didn't work for him either. So it really, <clears throat> it doesn't really look, it, it does look like they are in a bit of trouble. Yeah, I would say it, it certainly looks like they're in a bit of trouble, especially when you think of this track being such a good track for Yamaha in recent years. Um, I mean, I was going back and looking at where the best Yamaha had placed in uh, MotoGP races at the LaSalle International Circuit um since um the thousand cc four-stroke MotoGP era started and i mean you know yamaha has a, a sensational record um i mean just to read them going in reverse order from 2021 back i mean it was first first fifth but 0.6 seconds off victory third 0.7 seconds off victory first 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 second first first second i mean so pretty exemplary um yeah and ninth, for them to ninth be, is not second ninth is a long way and also uh fabio was 10 and a half seconds behind that's a long that's a big big gap exactly as i was about to say dave yeah 
like so ninth 10.5 seconds off at this track is uh, is really quite worrying indeed um i mean one caveat to that uh, list there is you know the Yamaha's seasons didn't always work out that well leaving Qatar despite a good result there um you think back to you know Rossi in 2018 2019 as well um but um but yeah I would I would say it's quite worrying another thing also is that yes Fabio had the issue with the uh, the overheating front tire and that was a big thing but I think even without that issue I don't think he was running the pace of the the leading quartet uh, maybe even the, the leading quintet you know, I think if, you know, if it wasn't for that, you know, Fabio would probably be in the same boat to, to Joanne Mir uh, thereabouts because, you know, Bastianini was putting in low one minute 54s right towards the end of the race. And when you look at Fabio's performances in FP4, I mean, he was doing low 55s, high 54s. I don't think that he was capable of running that pace at the front, even without the issues with the front tire. Um, and his race time was more or less the same time as he did in uh, the race last year. So um, it's it's tough you know, Fabio, I think, is at least uh, to us in the media, is uh, saying the right things, that he's not an engineer. He's just focusing on the job at hand and he has to continue giving his all, giving his maximum and pushing the bike to the absolute limits. But it's all fine and well saying that at the first race. When you get to a weekend where you just know you're up against it and it seems lost and it seems hopeless and you're out of the championship fight, I mean, it's very easy to become just... I'm motivated by that. And I'm not saying that he's going to down tools or anything, but I just think that 21 races is such a long championship to be in this situation. Um, and it's going to be such a massive test of his resolve um, going forward. I mean, as we were talking about it, my loser actually for the Grand Prix was Yamaha. I mean, like you pointed out, Neil, I mean, Fabio's race time was almost identical to, to the race where he won last year. Uh, you know, and if you consider that other manufacturers and other riders are going to improve their performance, then that simply isn't good enough. Um, you know, three of the uh, three, sorry, four out of the five slowest bikes in the speed traps were Yamahas. I mean, all four of them were down there. The only other one was Remy Gardner, who actually explained in his debrief that he had like a, a top speed issue with the KTM. They were trying to work out why that was. So it's it's pretty grim reading. Um, I mean, Andrea Davizioso won at this track in 2018 and 2019 but now he just looks like a fan with a bike i mean he's almost 10 kilometers an hour down on the suzukis so it's uh you know if if, if you're a yamaha employee or a member of staff or an engineer you're going to be scratching your head and you know there was even talk about fabio and his contract uh you know over the weekend and you'd think he that actually kind of puts him in a slightly stronger position because you know if he has a high asking price then yamaha are going to need to attract you know, a rider of his caliber and nail him down for a couple of years for the future and try to build a, a project around him. Um, somebody like Raslan Rosali might be looking at the satellite Yamahas and thinking, right, give me Livio Supo's number. I'll take the Suzuki's from 2022 for next year. Uh, you know, there's, there's, there's kind of ripples coming out from, from this performance. And like you say, it could swiftly turn around in Indonesia and everything could look slightly sunnier as, as we, you know, go on to Argentina and come back um, from the United States then to Europe. But um, this was, was not a good first step. Well, I'll tell you what, Adam, seeing as you've, you've jumped a couple of segments ahead with your loser of the weekend, um, we'll, we'll go to you for what was your big talking point from the weekend? Um, really just how... As we all know, of course, how preseason tests can throw up um, sorts of conjecture that really doesn't, you know, transpire to be entirely accurate by the time it comes around to race time. I mean, we all kind of thought that Ducatis would romp away 
um, you know, with the season, they obviously still have work to do. Um, we knew that Honda were in a great spot with the biggest kind of evolution of their RCV motorcycle concept in the last 20 years. Um, but it seems really as if the bike has been made for Paul Espargaro and, and that need to get better rear grip uh, to work even better under under braking. Um, Suzuki, we knew were faster. They set fantastic lap times throughout qualification. Um, they were actually the fastest bikes through the speed traps at 357. Uh, just to give you some context, the Yamahas were down in 348. So you had all these little storylines, I think, coming out from the tests. I, I think Indonesia was a real curveball. Um, it was more about acclimatization than any finalization of work for 2022, which is, you know, I think a justifiable complaint for most of the teams. But, um, you know, it was, uh, I think, if you look at the top five in La Salle, then we wouldn't necessarily have guessed that that would be the top five based on the test that we saw. And that, you know, is also something to celebrate. That's kind of exciting. I would say uh, that's, uh, that's maybe not, I wouldn't agree with that necessarily, Adam, because what we learned from preseason testing was the Honda was in great shape. We saw two Hondas inside the top five. We saw Bastianini in great shape. We saw the Yamaha's down in speed and, and maybe um, suffering. We saw... The Ducati guys, the official Ducati guys playing catch-up. We saw Aprilia strong, and Aprilia was fourth. I, I think the only big surprise, really, for, from the first race from preseason testing was, was KTM. We, we, we maybe didn't envision them being just as strong as Binder was. Did you not think that Ducati would have a much, you know, of course, Bastianini won the Grand Prix now. Would you think there would, I, I thought there would be more Ducatis inside the top seven, eight, nine. I mean, yeah, you yeah. can't legislate for two of them taking each other out. I certainly wouldn't have put KTM second, you know, come, coming into La Salle. Um, and Honda as well, uh, you know, it didn't quite work out for Takanakagami. Alex Marquez crashed, whereas at one point in the test, it looked like all four riders were going to be in for like a really strong start to the season. So, yeah, I mean, it's maybe it's a weak point. That is fair, and you wouldn't have. I, I certainly wouldn't have put Paul Espargaro ahead of Mark Marquez in racing conditions either. But um, you know, Paul managed to to hold it together. So yeah, there were there were surprises. I I must admit. Uh, the thing about Qatar is you can't learn anything from Qatar because it's such a weird place. It's such a strange track. You've got no track time to actually set the bike up. Um, you've got uh, a, a very fast straight. And then lots and lots of twisty bits. Um, it's a night race, and so the conditions are strange. It's very abrasive tarmac. Um, really, in the scheme of grand scheme of things, this doesn't really mean very much. You could, I mean, it, it sort of through history, it's never really proved to be indicative of what's going to happen through the rest of the season. Um, I mean, you know, but look, look at last year's Johan Zarco um, uh, and Maverick Vinales. You know. Um, it doesn't mean anything. I think this track in particular, really, the, the the championship is decided in the European races. So from once we get to Portimao, uh, to the, and even Portimao is a bit of an anomaly because it's such a strange track. Basically, the stretch from Jerez to Misano is where the championship is really decided. And then you get to the flyaways because the conditions, I mean, we go to Argentina where the track never gets used. We get to Austin, which is a, a, a quite a strange layout. And again, it doesn't get used much. It's quite bumpy. Um, uh, we're going to Mandalika, which is a new track and no one's got very much um, uh, uh, data. So you, you don't really learn anything about what the championship is really going to be like just because this it's just anomaly after anomaly after anomaly. So we'll, we'll have to wait and see. 
I have to say, I'm really glad that it took Dave 50 minutes to say, you can't learn anything from Qatar on our Qatar <laughs> review show. So that that's really good. At least you didn't just kick off the whole show with that. Yeah. But uh, for anyone that's, that's still listening and uh, wants to know a bit more about the Qatar Grand Prix, we've still got plenty of ground to cover. Um, my actual talking point from the weekend was a bit of a follow-on from what you were saying there, Adam, about uh, winter testing, except mine was about the progress Honda made because obviously, like Neil said, the the steps that we saw from Paul in particular really impressive all the way through the weekend but during the course of testing you know we see snippets of what's happening I'm, I'm not asked any of the tests from MotoGP so you're basing a lot on the feedback that you hear during debriefs what riders are saying a few bits and pieces you hear from engineers but to see how Paul was actually riding that bike the confidence that he had on it the fact that he looked a lot more like what we saw when he was on the KTM when he was a, a real top level rider for them obviously he's still waiting for that first premier class win but you'd have to say looking at it now he's an awful lot closer to that just because he has a bike underneath him that lets him ride and uh, David obviously for for Paul what, what we've heard from basically since he joined Honda was that he wasn't able to use the rear brake they've put some of the weight off the front of that bike brought it further back it allows him to use that rear brake a lot more and what was interesting on Sunday was Mark basically saying that, you know, this weekend I didn't have the pace for him. The lap time came easier for Paul with his riding style. And I can't ride a bike like that just yet. I still have to adapt myself. Yeah, exactly. Saying that he couldn't, he can't use the rear brake the way that Paul uses the rear brake. Because that was, um, I, I can't remember when Paul said, I can't remember if it was after the test. No, I think it must have been on uh, uh, earlier on in this, uh, this weekend when Paul was basically... Um, he raised like a love song to his rear brake, the fact that he could just like stamp on it and it would help stop the bike. This bike is really much, much closer to the bike that Paul Espargaro uh, needs um, than uh, what Mark could do. This, I think, is, you know, Mark is going to figure this out. Um, you have to have the confidence in the, in the front end. And uh, Mark was interesting in that he said, uh, when you're because he had a crash, I think on he had a, he had a small crash during warm up. That I think is his first crash of the uh, of the season. He hasn't really crashed during during uh, or during testing either. But he sort of said he, he didn't have complete a hundred percent confidence in the front end, um, and in a race you don't want to take the risk because you don't want to crash out. You want to get the points. Um, he will figure out how to use the brake, uh, the, the rear brake, to help get the bike stopped because you know he's always relied on the front end of the uh, front end of the bike. Um, so yeah, there, there's some adaptation there, but this is this is really good. And you talk to you know Alex Marquez and Takanaka Garmin, they also say this is a much much better bike. It's much easier to ride, um, but it's new. So you know you still have to the same with the same with the Ducati, the same with Suzuki to a, to a certain extent. You need time to actually figure it out, set it up, and all the rest of it. Yeah, and obviously Mark's crash in the warm-up session came with that medium front tire, and that's why Honda didn't end up racing that tire. And through the course of the race, after half distance, you could see just the struggle that uh, Paul in particular was having at the front. And uh, he ended up basically saying in the last third of the race, he was just trying to hang on. Once he lost the lead, he knew that was going to be it. And uh, if maybe he had been able to use the medium tire, he would have been able to fight a bit more. But once 
the team see a crash for Marquez, they're not putting that front tire in. No, and again, this is the lack of track time that you get at specifically at Qatar, where um, if this had been a normal track, you know, where you've got uh, a full session of FP2, uh, a full session of FP4, all under track conditions, they would have race distance on that front medium they would understand it they would understand it much uh, much better um but they just didn't have it on they, they they didn't have the complete sort of faith that it would work so they did so they did really didn't want to uh, want to try it so uh, again this i think is a, a, an artifact of qatar there were a few riders who said the same sort of thing they were caught stuck between two tires you know the the, the soft and the medium rear uh, the soft and the medium front they weren't sure about it and uh, obviously um, for everyone, that's where just getting that bit more of experience with their bikes makes a big difference. Adam, just to go back to your point about testing, this was quite a, a, a limited test season in the off-season as well. Obviously, we had the test in Sepang and also the test in Indonesia, but it wasn't like what we've had in, with the pre-Qatar Grand Prix test as well. And uh, do you think is that also a factor where a lot of these teams are still trying to get themselves up to speed with what are you know, quite updated bikes. I think Suzuki's a good point in question for that as well, because you look at Friday, it looked like Suzuki were really strong, looked like they were set for a great weekend. Saturday, you still thought, you know what, they've still got a good chance. And as it was, they came away with sixth and seventh. Yeah, I didn't get to hear what Ren said in his debrief, but um, Jeremy was uh, basically complaining of a lack of rear grip. Um, and more than one rider over the weekend, Steve, just to come back to the, the point about testing, were lamenting the fact that they hadn't had any laps around Qatar, which is not normally the case. You know, Qatar is one of the places where the teams do get to run some testing laps. So, um, you know, I think that the field got fortunate on Friday where FP1, FP2 were not so much about dealing with a dirty track. Um, I mean, we saw some quite startling images, really, of the dust and, and the wind blowing around. I mean, Neil, you were there, so you, you kind of lived it and uh, experienced it. But um, but yeah, Steve, it was um, a little bit more of a, you know, I hate to use the word a lottery uh, compared to previous years. But, um, you know, the Suzuki's are still like the Ducati's one motorcycle where I think they have to, you know, still refine their package. Um, but Mir was certainly a lot more upbeat compared to the slightly kind of despondent character we saw towards the end of last season. Uh, the thing about Qatar is... You know, they were complaining about a lack of testing time at Qatar, but the Qatar, I don't think the Qatar test is ever coming back. Uh, the, the point about going to 21 and maybe 22 races in the uh, in the future is to have less testing. The teams don't get paid when they get to, when they go testing. It costs a lot of money. Um, so the idea is to have more races and less testing. The idea is to have one single pre-season test. Um, that's also good for the show because, you know, people – or, well, one pre-season test – uh, basically, Jerez at the end of the uh, of the season, and then Sepang at the start of the season, uh, and that's it. And that's that's good for the show because it means, you know, well, as we saw, people come in and we don't know we don't know where they stand. Uh, they're, they're, there's still a lot of work to do. David, if you mention 22 races again, I'm going to banish you from this Zoom call, okay? That's the last <laughs> time we'll hear 22 races. Uh, just a quick word about uh, about Mir. Um, I thought one thing that he said was quite interesting. You know, we always think that maybe Suzuki is one of the better packages for managing its rear tyre. Um, you think back to Mir's championship win in 2020. He was always coming through from way back and one of the strongest, if not the strongest guy in the closing laps. Uh, he said that that was uh, an ability that they lost towards the tail end of last year. And he was a little concerned, actually, um, 
in, in the race there um, that uh, he feels they might have lost that a little bit because uh, towards the end he just didn't have the kind of the speed of uh, of Binder's KTM or uh, or even Bastianini's Ducati. Um, so it doesn't seem that Suzuki has that edge in that department anymore, um, and he thinks it could be to do with geometry or whatever. Um, he's, he's not quite sure. So that's something to keep an eye on. Um, maybe Suzuki have sacrificed something in a bid to get. A little more speed over over a fast lap i don't know but um yeah it does seem that uh, we haven't seen one of those late race mirror attacks in quite some time and i was expecting maybe a bit more from him on sunday i think he was expecting a bit more from himself um but you know sixth place is not a disaster yeah dave coming back to your point um or your remark rather about testing you know we shouldn't also forget that these factories have invested in test teams uh, there's a lot of work going on away you would assume away from an actual grand prix circuit uh, you know, and you have to wonder again, coming back to Yamaha, are, are they underusing people like uh, Cal Crutchlow and, and Jorge Lorenzo before? I know Lorenzo had the misfortune of being caught up in the pandemic and all the kind of shutdown of activity that went on around that time. But, uh, you know, there there is work happening in a way and um, a team like KTM are deciding, well, deciding, they're refining really how they go about racing and that the work of Danny Pedrosa and Mika Calio is a, a little bit more finalized, let's say, before it comes right onto the race bikes and Brad Binder and Miguel Oliveira and, and Gardner and, and Fernandez are starting to use them. Yeah, being able to fine-tune everything makes a big difference. Being able to have your test riders out in race action makes a big difference as well. That was one of the big things that Crutchlow said last year for his reasons for wanting to come back for races last year. It was just to be able to make him more relevant and up to speed whenever he did get on the bike during the course of the winter tests. Um, that covers most of the major talking points from the Qatar Grand Prix. We're going to come back after the break with our winners and losers and a couple of questions in from listeners as well. Fly Racing introduces the new FL2 glove. With molded hard knuckle protection, this race-inspired glove is equipped with palm and gauntlet sliders and touchscreen-compatible fingers. Available in three colors and sizes from small to triple X, the Fly Racing FL2 glove is the perfect answer at the perfect price. Check out flyracing.com to see more. Welcome back to the Paddock Pass podcast presented by Fly Racing and Renthal Street. And uh, David, I, I said that we were going to have a couple of questions in from listeners. I got one question for you that uh, came in from one of our Patreon supporters. And uh, he was asking just about the, the ride height control devices and uh, the bit of controversy that we saw over the course of the winter and uh, it rumbled on into the Qatar paddock as well. Yeah, I, I saw the question and the, the question was basically asking, you know, the, the ride height, hole shot, what's the difference, when do they use it and all the rest of it. Uh, I mean, it started out as a hole shot device, um, which yeah, Ad knows everything about from because it sort of came from motocross, um, which is where you hold one end of the bike down. First of all, it was just locking the front down at the start because the, the idea is lower the center of gravity, that gives you more acceleration. Um, uh, the, then Ducati developed a, a rear ride height device which lowers the, bottom, the, the rear of the device so you can lock down the front and lock down the, the rear. What happened, they were only using that at the start so those were, if you like, whole shot devices. Uh, then what happened was Ducati figured out that, hang on, we've got this sort of uh, little system of, of pumps and levers, which um, which lowers the rear of the bike. Maybe we can use that on corner exit as well. And so they have 
uh, they now have it, have it as a ride height device, which is basically you know lowering the rear on corner exit to get better acceleration. Now they've also found this front ride height device, which is a way of lowering the front um, uh, on corner exit because you've got a flatter bike, uh, uh, a lower bike, and you know the, the lower center of gravity means more uh, means more acceleration, and also. Uh, if you've got a flat bike, these the, the aero is designed for the, the the bike to be sort of more or less level, sort of in acceleration configuration. And uh, if you drop the rear, then the front comes up a bit, and then you've got sort of a slightly different acceleration configuration. You, you you've designed these aerodynamics, and then they're not working quite the same way. Um, and so you've by dropping the whole of the bike, it makes it a little bit. Uh, you've got better aero, more stable aero, more predictable aero, and you've got better acceleration because the, the because the the weight is lower. The trouble is, and maybe we are seeing some of this that the Ducati are paying the price for it, that they're having to put so much time into actually getting it right and making it work perfectly and consistently and uh, um, and and you know predictably that um, it costs a lot of money um and there is a controversy between it, inside the msma the six manufacturers of the msma five are against and uh, or five are against the development of front ride height devices and one uh, manufacturer is um in favor of the development of it i'll i'll leave it up to the listener to guess which is which um the trouble is the way that the rules are made is uh, basically the MSMA, the manufacturers have a veto on uh, all technical rules. So Dorna and the uh, and Erta and the FIM can't impose a, a ban on these devices unless they pose a safety risk. Um, and so the MSMA have to be unanimous on whether they want to use this or they won't use this. Uh, I'm not entirely sure about the what happens if the manufacturers propose a rule change. Um, I, I think it's slightly different. This is a, something I really need to uh, to look into. Um, but if it, it looks like we are going to get a ban on front ride height devices, um, the uh, other manufacturers want it to go in from 2023. Uh, the the uh, Ducati say, all right, but what about 2024? They'd be willing to accept it from 2024, so they get two seasons of use out of it. But the trouble is, once one person invents something, the rest have to follow, which is exactly what we saw with the whole shot devices, exactly what we saw with the seamless gearboxes, exactly what we've seen uh, with the uh, with the you know with the ride height devices uh, uh, on the rear, and um, Ducati's development on the front means that the rest are also are all going to have to do it. What about, um, you know, didn't the MSMA or the members of the MSMA complain about uh, the use of wings a couple of years ago? Or was it the rear uh, tire scoop? There was a it movement was the, basically the against Ducati, wasn't there? Yeah. Yes, ex yeah, exactly. Yes, exactly. I mean, they pointed out it was a tire cooler or Ducati said it was a tire cooler. It wasn't about, uh, it wasn't actually an aerodynamic attachment because again, it was, you know, a close reading of the rules. It wasn't technically banned. Um, Ducati took that to, I think, the MotoGP Court of Appeal and won that because they could show that it, uh, that it actually reduced the, 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 tire, uh, the, the tire temperatures. I think was it Paul Espargaro also during one of his debriefs uh, just sort of let slip that uh, yeah we all know that it's it's to cool tires um, 
So, yeah, it, it, it's one of those things where, I mean, the other thing is one of the reasons they've disappeared also is because when you use the rear ride height device, you're scraping the thing almost on the on the floor again as well, so it becomes less effective anyway. Um, but, yeah, it, it, it's one of those things where... Uh, there is, there was, because I remember that quite vividly, 2019, there was genuine war inside the MSMA. The the people weren't talking uh, to each other. People, uh, when I talked to sort of people inside manufacturers, they were saying like, basically, it's us and uh, uh, and Ducati and uh, uh, Ducati are just refusing to listen to us and it just ends up in a shouting match. Um, then the pandemic broke out and the MSMA worked together fantastically to limit costs, to limit development, to keep the whole thing sort of viable. And um, that worked really, really well. But now we've got free development again. We're back in the old, uh, we, we, you know, we're back in the old development wars again. <laughs> Another thing as well, Dave, you know, I, I mean, from are we doing a disservice to the riders by saying this is such an alarming safety issue? Because if anything, these kind of athletes have demonstrated supreme adaptability. I mean, something that might be quite intricate and tricky to use in the beginning. And of course, the main thing is a risk of failure. You know, if you have the front of your motorcycle locked down, you have zero damping. Uh, that's not going to be fun at two, more than 200K. But then, you know, uh, these guys, I know there was um, a question in the press conference that, uh, you know, they, they don't want to have to handle these extra controls, um, you know, when they're obviously extremely busy on the motorcycle anyway. So that, that is another issue. I just wonder how uh, vividly the riders' comments will be taken to the fore when it comes to making this decision. Yeah, I think one of the thing, things about that as well is that uh, speaking to riders whenever they make the jump from Moto2 to MotoGP, a lot of them talk about the fact that it's actually easier on a MotoGP bike than it is on a Moto2 bike because on a MotoGP bike, the field's a little bit more spread out. There's a lot more differences between the machinery. So riders actually have to think in terms of what makes their bike work really well as opposed to when you're in a class where everyone's got a Calyx chassis, a, a Triumph engine, Dunlop tires it's really close for being able to actually make a difference on it. So once you move up into the MotoGP class, you actually tend to have a little bit more, not so much time, but a little bit more brain power to be able to try and make some of those adjustments on the fly. And that's where obviously something like these ride height devices is a little bit different than that. But that is one of those things that a lot of riders say. It's actually sometimes a little bit more adaptable for them to be able to to do that on a MotoGP bike. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, the point about motorcycle racing and about, um, well, yeah, the riders anyway, athletes. These are the best athletes in the world. These are the best racers in the world. And if you put them on a, you know, a Norton Manx 500, uh, 500cc single, if you put them on a V4, um, uh, on a V4 Yamaha two-stroke, a Wiesner 500, if you put them on a, uh, on a, a Honda RC211V with no a massive, uh, massively powerful four-stroke with no electronics. If you put them on a, a Ducati GP22 with front and rear ride height device, it doesn't make any difference. They are going to find the limit of the performance. They will figure it out. That's what they do. That's um, why they're in the sport. There's, uh, no matter what you give to riders, they will figure it out. They will find the limit. Things don't necessarily get sort of safer or less safe because of a particular technology. In the end, it's a, it, it's the speed which are causing is, uh, causing the safety problems. Um, uh, they are always going to push to be as fast as possible. It's a, that's what motorcycle racing is about. 
yeah, I think we've probably hit our limit to that question as well, Dave. So we'll move on. We've actually got a few other questions in from listeners and a couple of them actually are about Moto2 as well. So Neil, just before we, we dive into them, what was your thoughts on this weekend of Moto2? Obviously, we saw Celestino Vietti claiming his first intermediate class win to go with a couple of Moto3 race victories. Aaron Kennett and Sam Lowe's on the podium. There was that last uh, last lap, last corner scrap between Augusto Fernandez and Ayagura. But uh, overall, what was your thoughts on the class? I thought it was interesting, yeah. I think uh, coming into the, 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 the first race of the year, there was obviously a lot of expectation around uh, Pedro Acosta. I think he was the favourite for the championship. Um, Augusto Fernandez as well had um, enjoyed some really strong testing performances. But um, yeah, Celestino Vietti had kind of gone under the radar. Um, and he was, uh, I mean, he was, I spoke to someone from Dunlop on Sunday morning and uh, they were kind of giving off at um, at the, the, the kind of work ethic of Moto2 riders. He was <laughs> basically saying, you know, we, we give these guys two two tires to choose from, a softer option and a harder option. They went one, uh, one option softer. Um, then last year did Dunlop and uh, rather than the whole field go out and test whether the, the softer could do race distance they basically just came to Dunlop after some of the sessions and said do you think it'll last and uh, this person was kind of saying you know well it's your job to go out and find a setting to see if you can make it last <laughs> in free practice ahead of the race this is the world championship this is about hard work and putting in the hard yards and he said the only person that did the hard yards in free practice on the soft rear was uh, Vietti so um, you know, it shows that uh, he had his he had his tactics right, he had his strategy right over the weekend. He put the work in, and um, you know, he has a very smooth riding style that is able to to take care of uh, the softer compounds that Dunlop are starting to introduce into Moto G. Sorry, into Moto Two racing. Um, I mean, it was total domination from him, six second victory, um, very strong indeed. Um, ahead of Aaron Kinnett. and you know, I kind of had Vietti maybe on the the outside of a, a possible title fight. I thought he was going to be a front runner in some races, but we might need to reassess that because it was a, a stunning performance. Yeah, I mean, it was especially the last corner. I mean, it was great, great action in Moto Two. Um, you know, Augusto Fernandez. I think a few of us tipped, you know, to be in the championship hunt. He was making all sorts of noises before the Grand Prix about not needing to win um and LaSalle for the first round but uh, you know I mean it was a, a composed performance it was unlucky to be hit by Ayogora uh, who himself rode really well and Sam Lowe's picking up the pieces um I just wonder what you know quickly as Moto2 starts again do we feel that enough has been mentioned about the technical side of this class because we we do focus entirely on the riders don't we I mean this is the first year of the next contract for Triumph uh, you know, 2022, they've got the deal for the next three seasons. You know, we've, we've talked a little bit about Calex. Uh, Neil, I mean, you know, we can highlight Dunlop as well, but it just seems that we're not really finding out if there's anything new or anything altered or different about what Triumph are doing with their engines. Uh, you know, how, what kind of challenges presenting to the riders. It, it just seems that, you know, people forget you know that, that it's got some some quite interesting technology under those fuel tanks um you know i mean you don't even really get to see the badge on 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 the tank it's um it's a strange situation i think for them uh, well i mean we're all also not really talking about calyx because you know there's just no development there because they've tied up the entire almost the entire field there are two Bosco Scuros and two MV Augustas and that's it uh oh and two 2021 Calex chassis uh for the RW racing team um uh Dunlop have bought this that you know it feels like Dunlop are actually starting to make a little put a little bit of 
effort into developing, into improving their tyres, which they haven't done for a long time. This soft tyre um, is a big step forward. It actually has more durability and more grip. Um, uh, and I think we'll start to see that. And that also is going to be good for riders. It's going to prepare riders even better for uh, for Moto2. But uh, yeah, there's, the, the, there's just a few places where the technology is stagnating. And uh, David, just uh, one follow-on question for you about Moto2. We got this in from Nathan on Twitter, so just drop us a tweet or uh, a DM at Paddock Pass Pod, and we'll try and get some of your questions answered during the course of future shows. But David, Nathan asks, is anyone cooler than Aaron Canat in uh, Park Fermi? Uh, uh, yes. Um, um, well, uh, the, only, the, the good thing about Aaron Canet is um, he, he doesn't have... Uh, Raul Fernandez's sunglasses. Um, so that's a huge improvement. Um, the whole mysterious thing with the uh, bow tie and the uh, uh, and the uh, uh, and the weird glasses and all the rest of it is uh, is is quite mysterious. And I'm quite looking forward to finding out what that that is about. But um, I think the the, the the thing I might I find most objectionable is the pawn tash. It is just absolutely dire, and it needs to go. I do always find it really interesting whenever something like this happens down in Park Fermi. Someone arrives with something that could be seen as a bit of a trademark for them. And the man that wears two pairs of glasses in the media center, <laughs> along with that big hat, makes fun of them for trying to make a statement. But uh, you know what? I'm gonna give you I'm gonna give you the opportunity, Dave. I'm gonna give you the chance to roll up with you can have first choice on who your big winner from the weekend was. Well, my big winner for the weekend is Mark Marcus. Um because uh he rode all weekend without pain um he could test his fitness um he learned a lot about the new honda um sure he still needs to adapt his uh, his riding style he came away fifth a lot of points um pekka benyaya the preseason favorite uh, crashed out came away with zero points the suzukis were uh, a, a bit disappointing sixth and seventh so he's uh, ahead of those fabio quartararo was uh, pretty much nowhere um, mark marquez has started this campaign sure and ayabastinini won you know he didn't even get on the podium brad binder uh, had an outstanding second polis barbaro had a really really strong performance as well but sort of poll showed what was went a little bit too hard too early and paid the price. Mark just sort of like sat there, figured out what was going to be possible and rode to it. Um, I think that, ironically, fifth place in Qatar makes him the championship favourite. What about you, Adam? Who was your big winner of the weekend? Uh, Steve, I'm going to very quickly, I'm going to say Bastianini for two reasons. One, because it's always fantastic to see a first-time winner. Um, just the whole reaction, everything. There's something much more uplifting about a, a person doing that for the first time compared to, say, it being the 25th win. Um, and secondly, because I think it shows that Italian riders don't always necessarily need to go through the VR46 Academy. Uh, we saw in Moto3 and Moto2, riders from this incredible scheme um, enjoying success. But, you know, Bastianini is one um i think you know he he missed out on selection or you know the, the the crew didn't quite pick him for somebody else um but it's still possible to to rise to the top of the sport him and digier of course uh you know in in the world championship not having gone through valentino rossi's um you know ultimate academy system yeah both coming all the way through with the grassini team really but uh, neil what about you who was your big winner 
Um, a big winner was Paulus Bargaro. Um, firstly, because he was talking a, a very good game on Saturday, um, which I thought at the time was maybe setting himself up for a, a bit of a fall on Sunday, saying that it was the strongest he had ever felt uh, going into the first round of a year, um, that everything was great, that he had the pace to run at the front. And I just thought, you know, this could be a typical situation where Paul is uh, shedding tears of a, of a, a non-joyous kind in his Sunday post-race debrief. But um, he rode brilliantly. He set the, a sensational pace at the front. Um, and he um, has that bike working perfectly for him. Um, and it's not quite working perfectly for Mark Marquez. There's not been too many occasions in Mark Marquez's career when he's been fully fit or close to full fitness, uh, when he's been just soundly beaten by his teammate. Um, and, uh, you know, that takes some doing. So I think Paul Espargaro uh, going forward could be... Um, yeah, I mean, it looks as though he could he could maybe win races this year for sure. It was also interesting that Mark was said, you know, Paul was riding this bike better than me. And that, I think, is for the first time in, literally in years since Danny Pedrosa left. So, yeah, I mean, Paul, Paul is looking really happy. I mean, personally, I think that the, there's more potential for Marquez than for Paul. Paul is riding this bike absolutely fantastically, um, but I'm not sure he's going to get much better on it, whereas I think Mark will. Yeah, I think for me, I'm tempted to go with Repsol Honda as my big winners, but obviously you two have covered that base pretty well. So I'm actually going to go with Michele Piro as my big winner just because it looks like Paco Bagnaia might be his new agent and basically saying that he's not a test rider. We need the test riders to do more work. We need the test team to be doing this. We need... A lot more happening behind the scenes and uh, given, like David said earlier on, about the fact that Pramac are going to have all that pressure on their shoulders now to develop the 2022 package, that could well mean that uh, Piro was just wheeled out as often as possible for Ducati and uh, we're able to see a little bit more of him through the course of, of the season. So I'm going to go with I'm going to go with the Ducati test rider as my big winner from the weekend. But uh, David, we came to you first for uh, winners, so we'll come to you last for the losers. Neil, what about you? Who was your big loser from the weekend? Yamaha, Steve. I mean, it's uh, we've, we've already spoken about it in the pod, but I just think if uh, they're starting off the season in this way, um, it doesn't just look like they're going to have great difficulty uh, defending their, their title from last year. They're going to have great difficulty maybe even finishing top three in the championship. Um, yeah, grim times, I would say, at, at Yamaha HQ. And uh, what about you for you, Adam? Um, well, apart from all of you, when it comes to the Fantasy League, uh, I'm going to have to also... <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm also <laughs> I'm going to have to say Dave, you're uh, in control of this Zoom call please just, just mute Adam now for <laughs> the remainder of it um, my pick was the same as Neil um, if I was Lynn Jarvis I would be you know penciling in a, a contract meeting with Fabio extremely quickly um, just to give reassurances um, also to throw a bit more money on top um, because you know, it, this is not just about results in the short term. This is also about impressions in the, the mid to long. Um, you know, if you want somebody such as uh, Ralph Fernandez to, to sign for you for a multiple year deal, then, you know, you're not going to be wanting to promise him a motorcycle that's 10 kilometers an hour slower than, you know, the smallest Japanese manufacturer on the grid. Uh, so this this is, you know, it's, it's a big alarm bell. And uh, what about you, Dave? Uh, well, I think... For me, I think it's Maverick Vinales. We saw uh, Alicia Spargo have a fantastic race, nearly get on the podium, finish fourth. Uh, the Aprilia is really good. Um, it's clearly a, a competitive package. And 
Um, Maverick was just absolutely nowhere. He was nowhere. I think he qualified 19th. He finished 12th, 27 seconds off of uh, off of the winner. He didn't look like being a factual weekend. Um, I don't think it's the bike. He says he still needs time to adapt to the bike, and he probably does. Um, but he's going to have to start to make some progress because this is it was just very very disappointing he was he was last at the end of the first lap and uh, his comments after the race he was saying uh, i didn't have any real grip all through testing i never encountered this performance and we come to the race there was no I've, grip yeah, have we I've heard never that heard before? Him, yeah no i've never heard him uh, say that he's never never had um, rear grip before it was certainly something he never said when he was at yamaha and caused him to leave and uh yeah, I think uh, that sums it up pretty well for Vinales, Dave. And, uh, you know, the more things change, the more they say the same at times. And uh, obviously there's been a lot of change for Vinales, but uh, just how soundly beaten he was by Aleish over the course of this weekend doesn't bode well. And at the end of the day, he doesn't have that much of an excuse at this stage either. He had the final hurdle last season, so he's had plenty of time with the team, plenty of time with the bikes. And uh, now it's up to him to really dig in and show what he can do over the course of the rest of the season. I was tempted to pick Suzuki as my big loser just because there was the sense of expectation on them coming into this weekend, especially after what happened on Friday. But uh, I think for me, that changed at uh, the end of yesterday's race. And the big loser for me was Johan Zarco because if I'm Ducati, I'm probably not going to put Bastianini into the factory team as it stands right now. You've still got Jorge Martin ahead of him in the packing order. But uh, in a Pramac seat, Surely Zarco is going to feel that pressure cooker building on him now. He's, I think, 31 years old of age. So 32 going into next season. Bastianini's going to be 24, 25 at the start of next season. So he's going to be a lot younger than him. He's going to have that experience. And at the end of the day, he's got more wins than Zarco now in the MotoGP class. And uh, Zarco, I think, is going to be under pressure as the season goes on. That's why the next few rounds become critical for a lot of riders. We talked about this, actually, in the preseason shows. The likes of Alex Rins being under pressure in the first five, six, seven, eight races of the season because he needs strong results then. Otherwise, Suzuki will look elsewhere. I think the same can be said for Johan Zarco as well. So that's where he came off as my big loser from the weekend in Qatar. Obviously enough... Um, there was no one that was a loser as long as they were supporting us on Patreon <laughs> over the course of the weekend. Loads of content all the way through. And uh, on patreon.com forward slash paddock pass podcast, you can check out our paddock notes shows. They're for our uh, $10 tier listeners. And over the course of the weekend, we get together to be able to get everyone up to speed for it. We've also got a lot of additional content through the course of the season. And uh, Neil, you've actually got that interview with uh, Carlo Prenad as well on uh, Patreon later on this week. So that's going to be quite interesting to hear what Carlo had to say. Always a lot of a lot of interest anytime you put a microphone in front of him. But uh Neil, what was the, the big takeaway that you had from that? He compared Enea Bastianini to a similar type of mushroom to the best riders he's worked with. So for that alone, you need to uh, take up a Patreon subscription and hear this interview. I'm sure he knows about mushrooms David, as well. Yeah. <laughs> Dave, you're chuckling away there. Obviously, you've changed your uh, site to mushroommatters.com for the rest of the season. You know, but, it's, uh, the one, it's the one URL I haven't um, uh, haven't managed to, uh, to, to lock down, so I shall have to get on that immediately. Yeah, get that sorted. And uh, obviously, it's uh, a little bit of a quieter weekend this week, you would think. But uh, Adam, you've already put Neil on a deadline and uh, it's going to still be pretty busy for you all the same. Um, actually, tomorrow I'm picking up a Husqvarna Norden 901 adventure bike. So I've got that for two weeks. I'm going to have a play around on that. Um, nice. And, you know, yeah, see what that's uh, all about. 
And um, on Thursday, there's a, a KTM uh, kind of sales manager conference thing in Barcelona. They've asked me to host and interview Remy Gardner and Pitt Byer a little bit about MotoGP. So I'll be um, on MC Juicy Steve and, um, you know, having to dig up some facts and find some stuff to talk about, which won't be very difficult as we've discussed through most of the pod. Yeah, well, we've got... We've got an hour and a half covered on Qatar. Right? There's plenty where you're able to dive back into for that. So are you going to be interviewing Remy in Spanish or in English? Good question, Dave. Um, I mean, he only lives down the road just outside Sitges. Um, you know, I think that's one thing people forget, you know, when they harp on about him being full on Australian. I mean, he's grown up in Spain. Uh, so, it, no, it'll be very much, very much in English. Adam, always remember to charge extra if it's in a non-native language <laughs> and uh, just uh, just make sure you get that in. But uh, Neil, for you, obviously, you're going to fly back home after uh, what's been a long week out in Qatar, but uh, you'll not have too much jet lag to deal with. You'll just be wrecked after the course of the last five or six days. Exactly. And I think I've got uh, my third vaccine dose is coming up as well. So I'm going to have to set aside a couple of days at the end of the week, probably to lie low and uh, try and recuperate my strength. But yeah, then off to Indonesia the following Monday. So uh, not really a great amount of rest in time because we have to do some quarantining when we get into Indonesia. So busy start to the year. Yeah, I tell you what, the Indonesian superbike range, there was some interesting hotel choices for teams to spend their quarantine. I know that the Kawasaki team didn't didn't stay in a five-star hotel. It definitely isn't the Ritz-Carlton that they were staying in <laughs> in uh, Indonesia for that. So hopefully you've managed to book yourself into a pretty decent one for the for the day. Neil, you're shaking your head there. It doesn't look like you have. No, it's, uh, well, let's, we'll talk about it next week, but uh, I don't have high hopes. <laughs> I'm looking forward to next week's show. Obviously, uh, we're going to be busy with the Paddock Pass podcast over the course of the next few weeks, and uh, the races come thick and fast. We've also got World Superbike testing, so myself and Gordo will get everyone up to speed in the next few weeks about the upcoming Superbike season, so everyone's got that to look forward to. Like I said, make sure to drop us a message at Paddock Pass Pod if you want your questions answered, and uh, we'll be sure to get them done on future pods. So, big thank you to everyone for listening to this week's show. Big thank you to our sponsors, Fly Racing and uh, Rent all street for continuing to support the podcast and uh, until next week we're gonna well neil's gonna fly home adam's gonna get to work david's gonna try and take it a little bit easy and uh, i'm actually off to spain for a few days as well so I'll, I'll work on my golf game for a few days just for a change this episode of the paddock pass podcast was produced by jensen beeler david emmett steve english neil morrison and adam wheeler it was edited by brian burnett music is provided by the liberty all inquiries can be sent via email to team at paddockpasspodcast.com. Super. Right. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Right. I'll do that in the future. Yeah. 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 Cool. Okay. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Yeah. Bye.